It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Could an Addiction Block My Christian Growth? Coming up in this episode, addictions destroy people's lives, and you've probably seen this in your own experience. What brings us down this road? When people first get on this road and begin to feel it destroying them, why don't they just get off? What is our responsibility towards God if we are struggling with an addiction? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Well, thankful to be here, brother. And our theme text is 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Life can be difficult and unpredictable. It can be full of insecurity, unexpected disappointments, and events that press and overwhelm our coping skills. All of this can bring us to places that make us want to run from our reality and instead engage in a pseudo-reality that makes us feel better, at least for the moment. Enter the pathway to potential addictive behavior. It often begins as a subtle escape or a convenient distraction or a thrilling experience. Destructive addictions always end in several layers of disaster. At the top of the addiction casualty list is our character, our integrity, our family, our friends, our work associates, and often our financial standing as well. What should we look for and do to avoid or remedy the destructiveness of addiction? Addiction, whether it be a substance, thought pattern, or behavior, is a deeply serious issue. We highly recommend that if you think you may be in an addictive cycle to get help with it. While we believe prayer and determination are vital for any Christian fighting this fight, we also know that the vast majority of the time we need the help of and accountability to others. There are many organizations in place to help with these issues. Please take this seriously. Yeah, please, please do take this seriously. And our initial question, could an addiction block my Christian growth? And the answer is yes. Addiction absolutely can and will block our Christian growth. This is a big deal. We need to understand it. And to help us understand this very difficult and really kind of traumatic subject, I want to introduce you to my dear friend, Merrily and begin with her telling us the happy ending of her story. And as we get into Merrily's story, it was a complex story, and I tried really hard to squeeze it down, but it was hard to do because she had so many amazing things to say. So here's Merrily, happy endings first. Yeah, I've known you for my whole life. You are my oldest brother. I have another brother, David. I am just so fortunate. I am married to a wonderful man, been married for 20 years and have two beautiful daughters who are next month will be 20 and 18 years old. No, so I've been married 21 years. Do the math. Um, (laughs) So that's where I am. I'm in a really great place in my life. Um, I have a very, very close connection with God and I really try to follow his will. And it always, it wasn't always like that. So you actually, in your earlier days, went through 
alcohol abuse and drug abuse. Yes. You were addicted to alcohol and drugs. Yes. So this is my kid sister, Jonathan. My my youngest sister. Oh, that's uh, that's hard. It is. That is hard for everyone, and especially for a, a big brother. And watching her go down that road, she's about six years younger than I am, and uh, so we will unfold the story. And, and Mira and I sat down about a week ago and just talked through this. And we asked her to do this because for people going through this kind of thing, you need to get a sense from somebody who's been there. And I'll tell you, I can think of nobody better to tell this story than my own sister with the ups and downs, trials, tribulations, and victories that she's had. So let's get on with this and understand it. Let's go to the Merriam-Webster online dictionary. What does addiction actually mean? A compulsive, chronic, uh, physiological, or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity having harmful physical, psychological, or social effects. Addiction also is defined as a strong inclination to do, use, or indulge in something repeatedly. So it means what we think it means, that that compulsive, chronic, habit-forming thing that overtakes and ends up running your life, whatever that might be. Let's go back to Marilee's story and get the beginning of the story. One of the things we asked her was, all right, so, so Mayor, what brought you towards addiction? You know, I never aspired to become addicted to alcohol or drugs. That was never part of my plan. I mean, I had a really, I had a wonderful upbringing, Christian household with mother, father, both of my brothers, my sister. I mean, I'm the youngest of four. And I mean, my my parents did a wonderful job. I mean, and, and now I look back, I see how that being a parent myself, it's like I see how they handled things and and where their strength came from i really was um a believer in in god and jesus and we went to bible conventions i had friends there i we wrote letters to each other and then there were the people that i met at school and we would always be at conventions over holidays like a three-day weekend fourth of july weekend and my friends were you know they were doing other things and we we were always at a convention. There were two roads. Uh, some of my friends and I, so it wasn't their fault. Uh, we just took sort of dabbling in, in things uh, and with drinking and, of course, not telling anyone. And that is getting the taste was, was something that um, I remember. And I had fun and I thought that it was great. So you start young, you start with small things, you get the taste, you start with the experiment, you start with the thrill, you start with all of those things, and it gradually gets a hold of you and you have no idea that that's what's happening. And when all of those things were happening, it just looked like, you know, my kid sister's doing what a teenager would do. And so you, 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 you watch that, but you have no idea what's really happening. And Marilee didn't have any idea what was really happening, and it would, it would, it would spring up on her. So it started with little things. But when, when you defined addiction, Jonathan, the first word you used was compulsive. It was a compulsive, chronic, physiological, or psychological need for something. What does compulsive actually mean? Resulting from or relating to an irresistible urge, especially one that is against one's conscience wishes. And, and Rick, compulsion is not always bad. 
No, it's not. You, you, we can be compulsive about doing the right thing, about trying to, to serve God and like, man, I just got to get back to it. I got to get back to it. And it's like this, this external drive. That's a good thing. But too often, compulsive behavior brings us down a dark road and compulsiveness brings us to addiction. We have to be on the alert. Now, compulsive behavior that brings addiction can bring us to a point of abandoning what's good and righteous in our lives to follow a new master. And that master is a master of darkness and deception. In Scripture, the nation of Israel gave us dramatic examples of this when they would abandon God for idols. They did that several times in their history, as recorded in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, he describes this process. So we're going to look at this process in four steps, and we're going to kind of compare it to Merrily's journey as we go through this. Israel's first step toward this pit of despair, and I'm calling it a pit of despair for very specific reasons. Stay with us. You're going to see why that unfolds, because it's actually scriptural. Okay, Israel's first step toward this pit of despair was they ignored the goodness and righteousness of God's deliverance. They had something precious, and they chose to ignore it. So, Jonathan, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 2, verses 4 to 13. Let's just do verses 4 to 6 for now. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? So what happens is Israel's walking away from God, and, and God says, you know, what injustice did your fathers find in me? I mean, where did I go wrong? I mean, now God is being very sarcastic here because God doesn't go wrong. But, you know, he says they walked far away from me into this land of emptiness, and, and they became empty. But, you know, I'm right here. Wh when did they say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Wh when did they not remember the things that were so important? So the result of this first step toward this pit of despair was they left home without God and were therefore vulnerable and defenseless. Well, Rick, weren't the Israelites supposed to celebrate the Passover once a year as a reminder of how God miraculously rescued them from slavery? How quickly we forget. And that's the point. They forgot the big things. If you're going to forget something, forget the little things. Forget the pocket change that you, you put in your pocket. Don't forget your keys. You know that, That's the thing. They forgot the big things, and they ended up in big trouble as a result. Another one who ended up in big trouble as a result was my sister, Marilee, in her younger years. As we went through her telling her story, I asked her, okay, so what was your thought process as you dug into this compulsiveness which led you eventually to addiction? And I consciously chose it. It was like I was attracted to the wrong. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know, do I talk about it? No, I don't want to talk about it. Because I was already starting to, to, to make my little pile of shame. What am I going to feed? And, and I wasn't mature enough to recognize that there were other things that are greater than at than the moment. I didn't want that either. Because of course, being a teenager, you know, I kind of liked boys. And I really wanted to be liked back. And I didn't feel like I was. So then I was like, Oh, what's wrong with me? When I was under an influence, I felt different. It created a, a fake 
me, one that would say things that I would never say, that I would do things that I would normally not do. And it wasn't a good choice. So she goes down this road. She has these these things. I, I like boys. I want to be like back. I don't feel like it. And so you do things to get the attention. And how dangerous that ends up being, especially when you're young. You, you do things for the purpose of gaining someone's attention. And essentially, you sell your life for the gaining of that attention. That's what happens. You don't know what's happening, but that's what happens. Israel went down that same dark road of just walking away, forgetting the things that they were given. And so there's this parallel of walking away from that which is good. Jonathan, we're going to be referring to an article from Psychospirituality of Addiction by Kevin P. McClone, and he's very eloquent on writing about addiction and certain properties that I think we need to highlight in this conversation. At the root of the compulsive and addictive pattern is a self that feels incomplete, insecure, and lacking adequate resources to cope with life's many changes, losses, and challenges. The direction of that search is clearly misguided by false idols or attachments that promise quick answers to life's complexities and suffering. Hope lies in recognizing these psychological and spiritual maladies that plague the lost soul. And Rick, back to our theme question, could an addiction block my Christian growth? Well, God knows us and our weaknesses. Do we continually need to battle these sins if we're already forgiven or so-called saved through Jesus? Aren't we good? No, we're not. (laughs) And we do need to battle them. Just because you've come to Jesus doesn't mean you're staying there. Don't, Don't misrepresent things. When we sin, we sin, and we need accountability for that. And when we get compulsive and walk toward addiction, we have a ton of work to do. I don't care if you think you're saved or not. The amount of work is the same. Let's not make light of it. And the, and the question we have to ask ourselves, therefore, is what do we do with the temptation to, like Israel, ignore righteousness because of the lure of our pain-hiding compulsions? What do we do? Ask for help. And that's a key. That's one of the big keys in this whole process. Ask for help. First Peter 5, 5 to 11 is going to serve as a guideline for choosing our thought process and actions as we compare the experiences of Israel. So Jonathan, let's start with First Peter 5, 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's an admonition here, be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves with humility. That's the place to start. That's the place to get back to. That's what we want to plant our feet on as we try to battle these kinds of things. So in terms of recognizing and facing addictions, Jonathan, what do we have? As a Christian... I will remember who I am and what I am called to be. I will humbly seek help from those whom I respect spiritually, and if needed, those who have experience with my issues. I will remember who I am, and I will seek help from those who know, not from my friends, but from those who can actually help me. So for many of us, the elements of Merrily's story are all too familiar. So let's pause and consider... Where am I going? Everybody has compulsive thoughts. How do we know when to be aware and when to be on high alert? It's a good question. Compulsive thinking is a very common human trait. And as we said, it can actually be a great tool for growth and accomplishment. But as with any tool of humanity, it may also easily be used for breaking us down and eventually trapping us in a dark 
place. So our first key is to pay close attention, pay close attention to where our compulsions are bringing us. And we need to keep balance, don't we? And it's really important. We can have positive compulsiveness, that, that desire to just really, really go after things, but we always have to have a balance as part of that. And it has to come from a spiritually-based thinking, a spiritually-based conscience. So that's a really, really good thought. So, Jonathan, let's go back to the article, Psychospirituality of Addiction, by Kevin P. McClone for another short quote. Addiction is misguided because it seeks to replace God with objects or attachments that command our allegiance. At the heart of the addictive process is a restless spirit that is seeking answers but is set off in the wrong direction. The path is an outer-directed search that denies one true, one's true self while caught in the web of idolatry and self-deception. Indeed, denial is the hallmark of the addictive process. You know, when he talks about at the heart of the addictive process is this restless spirit looking for answers but set off in the wrong direction. That is exactly what my sister Marilee had just described exactly what happens and you're just going and you're going in a direction and you're seeking something so we asked her next next what brought you towards addiction what was it was it a secretive journey yes and it was very hard to conceal um i know i got caught a couple times by yours truly yeah by me (laughs) (laughs) it was awful i gotta say rick you really tried very hard to help me I remember a, I remember an incident specifically where I was I was under the influence of drugs and I had to come home for like a meal. I was seeing things on the walls and I needed to get out. I needed to leave the house to go back to the party because that's where it was okay and 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 you like followed me. <laughs> I think you followed <laughs> me and and I remember seeing your car and you were just sitting there and I was like, "Oh no." what do I do? And I, and I felt compelled. I felt called to go to your car. Like there was an invisible energy. Like you were, you were, I'm sure you were praying for me. And that must've been like the pull. And I didn't want to, but I, but I wanted to, but I didn't want to. And, and you were like, so Mare, what are you going to do? And I remember very specifically that I said, I want to go back to the party, but will you still love me? It was really hard. It was a hard thing for me to do because I felt like you're, the love that you felt, the commitment that you felt to, to try to help me, I didn't want it then. I wasn't ready then. Mm-hmm. And it was an awful thing to then walk away. And Jonathan, I'll tell you, I remember that incident like, the, like, like it was yesterday. I remember kind of following her, sitting there in my car saying, literally saying, Lord, what do I do now? All right, I'm here, she's here. What? And we had that conversation, and I remember driving away thinking, just heartbroken, just just shattered because she was just, had made a choice. And if I knew then what I know now, I probably would have acted differently, but I didn't. And I did the best that I knew how, and I just remember it was, it was like getting stabbed in the heart because this is my kid's sister, and, and I know my kid's sister is getting hurt and I'm like sitting there just saying, I don't know what to do. Just, oh, that is so hard. It is. Oh. It, 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 was, it was very, very difficult and very vivid to this day. So come back to Marilee's story in just a moment. Let's go back to Israel. Remember Israel's first step 
you know, in, in terms of, of walking toward this pit of despair was they ignored the goodness and righteousness of God's deliverance. Well, their second step toward this pit of despair, and you can see why the pit of despair becomes a better and better picture as we go through this. Israel polluted the purity of God's gifts that he had given to them. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. I brought you into a fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land. And my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your sons, I will contend. Well, Rick, God gave them life, plenty, security, all of those things. But do you, do you remember in 1 Kings 118, it talks about Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It was one against 950. Remember Elijah's words, if the Lord is God, follow him. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, and all of Israel turned back to God. What happened? And that's the constant question is what happened? And when you're on the road to addiction, we have that what happened? Because you're drawn to something else. And as powerful as the power of God was, they still walked away. And this is a good illustration for us to look at and understand. The result of this step that they took uh, is they became comfortable without God as they indulged in sinful idolatry. I mean, they were prophesying by the prophet Baal, now by, by the God Baal. I mean, you're right. Really? That's the one you're going to choose at this time? It just doesn't make any sense but neither does addiction. It doesn't make any sense. But you get stuck and you're on that road. Next question we asked Merrily is, okay, so what were the signs that you were in over your head? You know, when, when you have experiences and you participate in things that you normally wouldn't participate in, and then it's like the next morning, you're like, oh no, what did I do? That should be an indicator. I, I just kind of added it to the pile of shame and said, well, Okay, I probably won't I probably shouldn't do that again, but I didn't really make any I didn't really make any changes to create that not to happen again. Yeah, big trouble came later. Big trouble came after I got married. I got married, I think I was 20. It was someone else that was drinking and drugging and I was like, "Oh yeah, he's the one." And so then we just continued together doing our thing and I mean, it, it you know, we I I was I was working. I, I had a good job and I you know, things got things got bad before they got better. We were we were dealing drugs. You know, in my mind, I, it would it would you know, you knew you're in trouble when you would try to save money. But every time you got it at a, the, the bank account got up to like three hundred dollars, you would have to withdraw it and buy drugs because, oh, yeah, we could sell it. But then we wouldn't sell it. And it's just it just it was really sad. I didn't recognize it as being as sad as it was. And Jonathan, you know, when we look at Israel, we say, how could they do that? But when you're in the middle of it and you're being drawn by it, you don't see. And, and, and you know, Marilee's a smart, smart, smart individual. She couldn't see outside of the compulsive behavior that had drawn her into this trap that was slowly destroying her life piece by piece by piece. She couldn't see even though the signs were there. And so, folks, that's what we say pay attention. Jonathan, that's a couple of lines back to the, the uh, article by Kevin P. McClone. 
My belief is that we cannot fully understand the road to recovery until we see that these addictions and over-dependencies serve a deep need that is still unmet in the person. And see, that's the thing. There's that deep need that you keep grasping for and are never able to get to. And that's what addiction does. It's that, it's that repetitive behavior. You're the, the mouse on the, on the wheel. You're running and running and never getting anywhere. That's what it does. There's something you're trying to fulfill. Scriptural example of this, King Solomon. King Solomon, wisest man on earth, yeah, but he was engaged in compulsive behavior that clearly led him away from the Lord his God with his hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines. Let's look at, very briefly, 1 Kings 11, verses 3 to 9. Let's take 3 to, three to 6 to start with. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So there's a great comparison here. Solomon had all this wisdom, but yet his heart was turned away by all of these wives, and the scripture says his heart was not devoted to God like David's was. So there was a tremendous disconnect, and the wives were what were drawing him away. He made the choice, and he followed that drawing. Verses 7 through 9. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burnt incest and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Well, Rick, God appeared to him twice. Don't you think he would keep him first and foremost in his life? But but think about this. God appears to us through providential overrollings and through answering prayer. Yet we can fall prey just like Solomon. We need to guard ourselves from anything that replaces God in our lives. Idols can be sports teams, politics, immoral lusts, and even food and clothing. And see, all of those things can become compulsive and whatever becomes compulsive has the danger of becoming addictive. So we need to be watchful, not just of ourselves, but of one another. Look over the shoulder of your brother and your sister and see that if there's something that doesn't seem right, please ask, please please connect with them and so that we can protect and build each other up because we don't want to go down this road. Solomon had so much power, wealth, and influence that he saw his own fleshly desires as more relevant than the law of the Lord his God. Think about that. Think about that disconnect. That was a big, big mistake of thought and action. And Solomon, at the end of his life, says all is vanity. He realized how far off he had gone, and he really lamented his own decisions. Let's go back to Merrily's story, because she is unfolding the process of getting into trouble at this point. And so the next question we asked her was, okay, so Mer, when did you realize that you were in over your head. It was during that year of him being in jail that it got my attention, although I quite wasn't quite ready. I, I, I had a, there was a party at, my, at, at our apartment and he was somewhere else not doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing and I wanted to go somewhere else because they had the kind of drug I was looking for. And I went there and I ended up getting arrested and I got arrested for possession and it 
really wasn't mine. I, I, people always say that. But <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was very, um, I was very scared. And I, and I had some stashed in my purse that was mine, but what was in front of me that the police walked in on wasn't mine. Anyway, I spent the night in jail and I was like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? And I was really afraid. And I knew that, that I, I knew what petrified me. I mean, it was scary enough, like, oh my gosh, I'm arrested. What's going to happen? But what scared me almost even more than that was what happens when the fear wears off? Because I knew I would use again, and it sounds insane, but it didn't matter because that's, that's the grip. The grip that the addiction holds is like, oh, well, if you just use again, it'll be all better. It's like, no, it won't. And I had in my mind, I, I spent a lot of time by myself, thank you, Lord, <laughs> in my little cell, and uh, someone had given me a pack of cigarettes, and I like chain-smoked the pack of cigarettes that night. And I was thinking in my head, like there's this crystally line of cocaine going into this jail cell and the, the, with a caption underneath it is, is this the end of the line? And that really got my attention because, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? So that's how I knew that I was in trouble. So, and I prayed that night. I don't exactly remember my prayer. Um, I think my prayer, I hope my prayer was, I don't remember Help me to learn to not do this anymore. So she's sitting in a jail cell, having all of this time that night to think about what she had done to get there. And, you know, I, I, I really appreciate the way she described the fear and described, is this the end of the line? Literally, there is a line of cocaine in her envision of, of, of where she is. Is this the end of it? Or is this the beginning of something even worse? There's this desperation that she had, that she had to cope with and had to learn to work through. So, so the question is, what do we do when maybe you're not in an addictive place, but maybe, maybe we're working towards that or maybe we're in a danger zone? What do we do when we find ourselves polluting the purity of God's gifts and, prov- and gifts to and providences for us? What do we do? Ask for help. We need to ask for help. And Jonathan, that is such an important factor. Always be willing to ask. That's a hard thing to do. It is. But that's what's necessary. Seek that help in Scripture and with those who are capable. Not with your best friend. Don't look for help from your friend. Look for help from somebody who knows how to help. There's a world of difference between those two things. To help us with this, we're going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now we're going to go to verses 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Well, anxiety can be difficult. Uh, We addressed the topic of anxiety and depression in episode 1124 and 1125. Does my anxiety or depression invalidate my Christianity? Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and enter the episode number into the search bar. So the idea of dealing with anxiety, it says cast your anxiety upon the Lord. That's easy to say. It's not easy to do. Let God exalt you in due time. Here's the thing. Compulsive and addictive behavior self-soothe for the present moment. And, and, And as a result, they end up destroying in the end. Whereas faith in God can truly exalt us, because isn't that what you want from addiction, to be exalted? Well, faith in God exalts you in his time, 
not yours, his time, because he legitimately cares for you. The gods of addiction don't. The bottle doesn't. The drug doesn't. The dealer doesn't. But God does. Let's put our loyalty where it can help us. Jonathan, recognizing and facing addiction, what do we have? As a Christian, I will rethink what can bring me true comfort. Even if I am not yet strong enough to consistently act on it, I will hold on to this comfort in God as I know it. it is his power to prevail if I allow it to. If we allow God's power to prevail, it can do its work. But we have to get out of the way and allow it to do so. So this whole addictions discussion really boils down to observing where we are and intentionally acting on what we see. What does it look like when we finally gain enough clear perspective to definitively turn the corner? The journey through destructive compulsive behavior and addiction is long and difficult and don't let anyone tell you differently. Turning the corner and going toward a life filled with light and hope only comes when you are truly ready. For some, that readiness arrives in the form of immovable forces. And if you recall in our story, in Merrily's story, she's sitting in a jail cell. So before we go back to the story, let's go to another quote from Psychospirituality of Addiction uh, by Kevin P. McClone. One of the great spiritual truths is that awareness in the present moment allows us a glimpse of eternity. We can race through life or seek refuge in all sorts of false comforts, but ultimately some of life's deepest treasures are found in the presence to life, whether a sunset, a friend's support, or the play of a child. And Rick, I personally want to add to that list the love of your spouse. And so there's wonderful things that we can rely on. And, and, you know, addiction, that racing through life, and we're looking for refuge, but the only true refuge comes from things that are real, that are solid. And God and faith and those who love you are amongst the highest things that we can learn to, to, to lean on. So we left Merrily in the jail cell there. And so next we're asking her, okay, so Mary, what did you do? How did you finally allow yourself to get help? Well, it wasn't me that made it happen. And that's the beauty. And maybe that was my saving grace. And I didn't tell my family. So I was going through all of this struggle and fear. And, and I remember we were at my great-grandmother's house and you know, sitting around the table. Oh, Merrily, how you doing? Oh, good. You know, it's like inside I was dying. I was dying. If you only knew you wouldn't, you wouldn't love me. And, and that was not, that was so far from the truth, but I didn't, I didn't trust that. Um, I, I was, I got probation and I had to have drug treatment. So that was the beginning of, of the light at the end of the tunnel. That was not a train. So you were pressed into getting help. Yes. I have to be pressed well, for so many things. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's a, a tremendous admission. Yes, you were pressed into help because she had to be. And so being in that really down position was a bottom from which she could look up. And sometimes we need that. We always need to hit some kind of a bottom. But let's not disallow the love of those around us. And, you know, she had a really hard time in those early days accepting it. We want to be able to embrace it. And if we are on the outside looking in, let us love without condition. 
those who are suffering and going through these things. It's so difficult. It's so difficult. Israel, let's go back to Israel. The third step toward their pit of despair. Remember, they're walking away from God. They gave themselves wholly over to new masters. And these new masters, in fact, were masters of deceit and masters of godliness. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar, and observe closely, and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory from that which does not profit, but appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be desolate, declares the Lord. Rick, Israel changed from the true God to a piece of wood or stone. (laughs) Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make graven images. That's what they did, because the other people were doing it, and it seemed like a good thing, and it seemed to be fun, and all of those things. And that's what addictive behavior brings us to, worshiping something that's not even tangible, not real, that can't love us back. I mean, think about that. The result of this step Israel took is they committed themselves to idolatry. They committed themselves to idolatry and became just another godless people who followed the compulsions of sin and gods, like you said, gods of wood and gods of stone. So a sad story, and it sounds exactly like Merrily's story, doesn't it? It does. She has gone down this path, and now she's beginning to turn. Now Israel isn't turning here. Merrily is beginning to turn, and we asked her now, because now she's getting to the point of, of getting help, we asked her to talk about treatment and talk about accountability. There, is, there are gems in this piece. Listen. It was like an outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. So I would go after work, and, you know, I was um, a legal secretary, so I was, you know, would wear a dress or a skirt, and, and then I would go to this place, and, and, and people had said to me, it's like, you don't look like you belong here. You know what? Looks can be very deceiving. Mm. And I didn't look like I was addicted to alcohol and drugs, but guess what? Yes, I was. And so that that program, um, you know, they suggested we go to some meetings and, and actually there is where, you know, I met people that knew how to live without any other substance. And I kind of wanted to be like them because they had a freedom in their speaking and they had a connection with with their God. And I remember I had a connection to God. And I'll never forget the first time I went to one of those meetings, I felt like I came home. It's not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that you have to be all in. It's there there are different ways of figuring out, you know, like what do you, what is your connection with God and can you trust him and can you learn to trust him and that's like the first the first part of it is having a trust in something higher than me there's got to be something and thank goodness there's there's things higher than me because um yeah left to my own devices this this is where i ended up and i had to tell the things i did and I was happy to do that because I could finally share all those things deep inside me, like how much I yearned to wanted to be loved and what I did to, to, to get that. And it wasn't, it was, it was sad, but I didn't know it was sad. It was the only way I knew at that point I needed to talk to my parents. They didn't want to hear really all the things, but I needed to tell them the things. They were so thankful that not only was I 
alive, but that I was clean and sober and doing something about my life. And and I talked with you. I talked with Dave. I talked with Joy and, you know, other people that I'd harmed that they may have not even known. And, you know, that's humbling. So you, you, you were building this pile of shame from your earlier in life. And what you did, it sounds like, is you took that pile of shame and then deconstructed it by being accountable for it. Yes. What a powerful thought, the accountability part of this thing, the willingness to pour out your soul to those that you hurt, to say, I'm sorry, this is where I was, this is what I did, I am fully responsible for this. And Rick, it's too costly to go backwards. It is, and, and see, that's the key. It, it was too costly for her to go backwards, and the only way to go was forward, because the fear, the anxiety, the, the, the depression, the, 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 the yearning, all of those things were just too much. They were too much to bear. And she saw these people and, 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 and she, she said, okay, okay, finally, I can look at God and say, God is bigger than me. Thank goodness that that is true. Let me hold on to something bigger than me instead of plowing through life, trying to find something that I can't even ever get my hands on. Let's, let's go back again to another part of the quote from Kevin P. McClone. One of the telltale signs of early recovery from addiction is that the addict begins to speak more from a heart of gratitude than scarcity. Gratitude is a fundamental awareness that one has received a gift, and this radical change in perception is a filter that begins to shape one's experiences in later recovery. And you could hear the gratitude coming out of Marilee's voice when she was talking about looking at these things and seeing these people who live without a substance. And it's like, I, I want to be like that. And there's this gratitude that God is there. And, and, you know, this is a very important scriptural principle. Let's use the Apostle Paul. We've used this example before. But when the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa, and he's in trouble, he pours out his personal accountability for the things he had done when he was persecuting Christians. Acts 26, 10 to 13. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I look up many of the saints, lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. So Paul was thoroughly accountable to, to a stranger. He said, these are the things I did, and then I saw this vision, and I could see life differently after sharing this miraculous encounter with Jesus, because he was on his way to, to commit destruction. He remained accountable now for his present actions. And we read that in Acts 26, 19. So King Agrippa, I do not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. So Rick, Paul stopped, changed direction, and moved forward, and stayed accountable to his new direction. So he was accountable for what he had done, and he remained accountable for what he was doing. So that accountability factor that Marilee shared with us is immense in terms of making things right. So let's go back to Marilee's story again. She's, she's working through treatment and accountability, and she said it's not for the faint of heart. So the next question was, okay, so when did you begin to see daylight in all of this? Um, I have been 
sober for 33 years Mm -hmm. since March, excuse me, since November 16th, 1987. You know, I, I did, I had one little slip when I was a year sober. I, it was like my year anniversary of not having a drink or a drug. And I was with my friends, my older, my old friends, you know, there's, their suggestion is like, don't go to bars. We were at a restaurant. That was a place that we used to drink at years ago. And and one of my friends was like, oh, well, why don't you just have this drink? You know, you, you used to drink those. And I'm like, I, I don't want it. And and she put it in my hand. And I'm like, I took a little, like a sip. I didn't drink it. I didn't guzzle it. I didn't want it. And still, I couldn't just say no. What the heck? And I took, like, I had that taste. But it was gross. And thank goodness, because wow. I'll tell you, all it takes for sometimes for some people is a sip. Mm-hmm. Like you gotta you gotta move it out of your way, out of your sight, and because it is it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. That's what addiction is. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. I did not make up those words, but they fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. They fit perfectly. So you know what? My I needed to to come down off of my high horse too because you have to be careful. You know, ego is something that we all have, but where is it? Am I thinking I'm all that and a bag of chips? Well, I need to, you know, be very careful because I you my behavior would change if I'm coming from that place and I don't want to come from that place because that's not a healthy place for me to be. So she's understanding the power of addiction and the it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And she says, move it out of your way. Move it out of your sight. Get it behind you. And it's such a powerful thought to put that in perspective. And folks, that's hard. That's hard to do. So we have to ask the question, what do we do when we find that we've given ourselves wholly over to masters of deceit? And that can happen. That can happen to us. With our clearest thinking, what do we do? Ask for help. You keep saying that. <laughs> well, we need to remind ourselves over and over again. Ask for help and seek that help in Scripture and with those who are capable. Remember, Marilee's out with her friends. Her friends did not help her. You need the capable ones to be the ones that help. Let's go to That's first. That's right. A tr- uh, before that, Rick, a okay. trusted support system that we can rely on. Yes, exactly. Not old friends that will take us down the wrong road. Right, right. You have to get help where it's actually going to be helpful. First Peter 5 Eight and nine. Be of a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the apostle is telling us, be sober. You know, and you, you look at that and you think, and what does be sober mean? It means don't be drunk, okay? It means be in your right mind. Be calm. Be collected. Be alert. Stay awake because you are a target of darkness. And if you've been through addiction, you still remain a target of darkness. Victory can only come through resisting in faith. Know that you're not alone. Seek help from those who can actually help you. Recognizing and facing addiction, Jonathan, what do we have? As a Christian, I will retake my allegiance from the false gods of darkness and bring it back to the only true God of light. This retaking requires honest accountability, determination, patience, prayer, and help from those who are righteously capable. I know that I am not alone in this battle. Know that you're not alone. We started with remember, then rethink, and now retake our allegiance from the false gods. 
put it back where it belongs. You know, we often think about and talk about doing the work. Well, the reality is the only thing, the only change happens when we decide to actually do the work. How do we take the effort and dedication to overcome addiction and make it permanent in our life? (laughs) That's the big question. Anytime we toil in the field of Christian maturity, we want the fruits of that labor to be enduring. To accomplish this, we need absolute steadfastness to the foundational principles of our calling. What are those principles? These principles teach us that our lives, our wills, our minds, and our bodies all belong to God through Christ. None of that is our own. Therefore, when we go down roads of addictive thought or, or compulsive thought and behavior, we got to think, we're taking God's individual down that road. That is not where it needs to go. Another quote, Jonathan, from our last quote, actually, from Kevin P. McClone's article, Psycho-Spirituality of Addiction. Addiction is a shame-bound disease. It hides and avoids the light of truth. God's action in our lives calls us to face the darkness without fear, to come into the light and experience forgiveness and transformation. At the root of recovery is a courageous journey out of self-centered preoccupation toward genuine care for others. So you see the turning, the changing of the tide here. The re- at the root of recovery is a courageous journey out of this self-centered preoccupation. And that's what the journey merrily was on and continues to be on. So our next question was, as she's going through this recovery, how did, you, how, how did recovery lead you to discipleship, to truly being, coming a follower of Christ? I got to learn about looking at my experiences and looking at them, but with a different with the eye of what did I learn from that experience? Sometimes I have to be hit in the head with the sledgehammer. I know you talk about the velvet hammer. Yes, yeah. I well, prefer I, a velvet I one, know. Yes. I would prefer something a little bit like an air one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I needed to learn some things the hard way because it, like, getting arrested was a blessing. It brought me to where I couldn't bring myself. Like the Lord had his hand in my life all through all of this trouble and tumult that of not of hating myself, of not feeling worthy, and you know, just all these different things that I had to walk through. And I could take him with me wherever I went, and I can ask for help, I could ask for guidance. It was amazing because I got to get through difficult experiences because of God. Sometimes I remember I would always wait for the big happy. It's like, oh, I want this grand thing to happen. I want all of this. And and it's not always, life is not about the big things. It's actually about the little things. So then I started imagining, recognizing the little happies as they happen. And little things. I'll walk down the street. I'll see a flower. It's just a flower. But you know what? I am thankful for that flower. And because I'm thankful, I could see it. And if it had a a nice smell, like if it was a rose, I could smell it. And you know what? That was a little happy. These little things that happen every, and I still, I still look for the little things in my daily life. And she really does. She really does. I can tell you that there are times when we're talking and she'll talk to me about the little things, the little happies. And, and it's a habit of growth and a habit of thorough contentment. 
And that's really what we want to get to. The Apostle Paul teaches us to seek the little happy. Now, he doesn't use those words, but that's what he's talking <laughs> about. And we, he teaches us to see its glory. 1 Timothy 6, 6-9. to But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And you can look at that scripture and say those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Those who want satisfaction at any cost also have that same ruin. And that's what compulsive behavior can bring us to. That's what addiction brings us to. And we lose the contentment in the beauty of our life that God's providence can show us. So as Christians, we want to stand above that, and we want to watch out for each other as we walk through our Christian experiences. Now, one last time. Now, Marilee has obviously turned the corner in her story. Well, Israel obviously didn't. Meanwhile, according to Jeremiah, Israel was arriving at the height of godless discontent, and their fourth step toward this pit of despair was they found the pit, okay? They forsook their source of growth in life and replaced it with the empty and destructive promises of godless thinking and godless behavior. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. This is a profound verse. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they, they forsook the fountain of living waters, to dig their own cisterns, their own wells, and all they ended up with was muddy pits of despair. That's what he's saying. You go off on your own, you go off without godliness and righteousness and truth and integrity, and you end up in a muddy pit of despair. How you doing so far? Not good. The result of this step, they created for themselves an environment of lifeless activity, and literally, they dug holes to, uh, to preserve life-saving water, only to find themselves with pits of mud and despair instead. Addiction is always there. We need to be on guard with our choices, Rick. We do. Addiction, once it starts with you, it doesn't ever, ever leave. It's always there. Always be on guard. The pit, that muddy pit of despair, is no place you want to go. So the final question for Marilee was, and, and with her stories, so what do you say to others who are struggling? What, what do you say to them? There is hope, and that there is a way, and that there are people that are there that will help to support you. We have the ability to create a new way of life, but it has to be a new way. It can't be the old way. You know, I often look at it, I, was th I used to think about it as it's like ruts in the road. And I can remember driving uh, like in New York or something and some of the roads, they have like little ruts and, and like you, it's, it's very easy to stay in the rut. And there, I mean, there are organizations and stuff worldwide that are, are there to help people that struggle with alcohol and drugs. You know, with, with my husband, he's my, he's my second husband and you know, the, I was, I was sober before I met him and I worked on myself. So I didn't have to repeat past mistakes. Hmm. I was able to rise above those and actually find out who I was character wise, like what makes me who I am. And, and I got to even refine things through, you know, the different things that we do in, 
in meetings and and just with growing and you know I'm so thankful for that because my life today is amazing. Does it have problems? Of course it does. But my life is amazing and I have a connection with the Lord that is something that I lean on. I lean on and I try to aspire to be more of thee and less of me because if I am too big, that's a problem. <laughs> I have to be right-sized. So, you know, it really touches me, Jonathan, to, to hear her tell that story of meeting her second husband when she was already in a sober condition and had done the work and, and so she could avoid repeating past mistakes. And I will tell you just one little sidelight of that is I had the distinct privilege of performing their wedding ceremony. And it was a highlight for me to see my sister having come so far. It just was an amazing thing. Well, Rick, what about relapses and weak moments? How do we get past those? Well, again, first of all, you look for help. But secondly, you have to make the decision. And Marilee's been telling us again and again and again, this is a constant decision. It's a constant movement forward. You have to make choices. And next scripture we're going to look at is, is going to focus on choosing gratitude over discontent, choosing faith over fear, and, and choosing God's peace over a momentary escape. That's what Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9 is going to tell us. Jonathan will take this in three parts. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Live what you say you believe. Be, don't be anxious with prayer. Put everything before God. That's how it starts. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we get that peace if we've done the things before that the previous verses described about being anxious for nothing and rejoicing in the Lord. That's where the peace comes from. So when we fall, this is what we want to get back up to. And then finally, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. For more on how gratitude can bring peace and contentment, see episode 1154, how can we be thankful after the year we've had? Yeah, and, and you know, you, you look at that, and, and you, of course you look at the year that we've had uh, this past couple of years with the COVID thing going on with us right now, but you also look at this addiction issue and say, how can I be thankful if I've fallen, like you said? And the answer is, because God's got you. If you let him, if you have faith, if you're following Jesus, we can be thankful because that's part of it. We do have forgiveness. We just need to go in the right direction to find it. So, one more time. So what do we do when we find that all of our running and hiding brings us to a muddy pit of desperation and grief? I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you know. Ask for help. <laughs> That's right. And, and you, know, it, it, you know, we can laugh, but it is the most important thing to do. Ask for, for help from those who are capable. Ask in prayer. Seek help in Scripture. And again, those who are capable, those who actually know how to help, not the people you're comfortable with, 
those who know how to help you. Finally, 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So after you have suffered a little while, think about that. God allows us to go through suffering. Now, Marilee, in her experience, went through suffering for a very long time. Now, it was before she was dedicated Christian, but she suffered for a long time and fought through, and God blessed her and carried her. And now you look at the kind of life that she's able to live. After you've suffered for a while, God is with you. The reason you suffer is so you can learn. That's why it's there. Our best learning usually comes from our hardest experiences, if we allow it to. How else can we be truly complete, like the scripture says, be complete, be confirmed, be strengthened, and be established? How can we be all of those things? Unless we go through the suffering, through the actual experience. Fighting against addiction is suffering. It's hard, but it is worth it. Jonathan, finally, recognizing and facing addiction. As a Christian, I will seek to recognize destructive compulsiveness and addictions and will recommit to God when I am weak or fallen. I will stand in God's grace with the help of those who are capable, face my weaknesses, and glorify God as a result. And Rick, we have to recommit over and over again. Never give up. And that's the key. And that's what Marilee taught us with her personal experience. And I, again, I can testify to you watching her go through this and the work and the effort and the consistency and the application of all the things that she learned. And the key is she never let go of the things that she learned along the way. And to this day, she hasn't let go of the things that she learned. We want to remember, we want to rethink, we want to retake, and we want to recommit. Folks, addiction is an issue that needs us to be really, really clear and focused. So, so Jonathan, a few days after the interview with my sister Marilee, she texted me the following. She said, my overcoming addiction is a daily reprieve with God at my home to assist me in the things I choose. Over time, it has gotten easier to choose the higher way. I make choices every day, but my addiction is not gone. Satan waits for me to weaken so he can offer me wrong options. I always have to choose not to take them one day at a time, one moment at a time. Folks, that's the story of overcoming addiction. And I am honored that Marilee is my sister. Think about the story. Think about the scriptures. Think about the lessons that can come from such deep hurt and pain and trauma and sorrow and trial. It's possible. It's hopeful. But rely on the people who can help you and rely on God and those who you can trust within your spiritual family as well. It can be overcome. Addiction can be overcome. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions and all your favorite podcast channels. Rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Next week, coming up, can the dead communicate with us? Talk to you then.